Hello and welcome. You're listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show podcast. Join me as we go delving through the archives to find out about people, places and events that happened in the past. These were stories that were big news in their day, but are largely forgotten now. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at Backtracker UK with a capital B capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk. Now, on with the show. As usual, we go through stuff that happened in the same year as our main story in the show. And so this time we'll be talking about 1913. And we'll start off with a story that was in the newspaper on exactly the same day as our event, which was the 17th of March 1913. It was on that day that two miners spent a fourth day underground at Egmont in the Cumberland, following the collapse of a dam leading to the mine being flooded. One man was drowned, but two others found their way to a surface borehole through which essential food and supplies were sent to them whilst a rescue operation was undertaken. Enough water was pumped out by the fifth day and one of the survivors, John Cairns, promptly walked the two miles home, none the worse for wear. He was awarded the Edward Medal by the King for his bravery because he had re-entered the passageway to warn his colleague of the danger when they became stranded. Other stories from that year include King George I of Greece being assassinated after 50 years on the throne on March the 18th. He was succeeded by his son, Constantine I. On June the 4th, Emily Davison, a British suffragette, runs out in front of the King's horse, Anma, at the Derby, She is trampled and dies four days later in hospital, never having regained consciousness. On the 26th of July, 50,000 women take part in a pilgrimage in Hyde Park, London, organised by the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies. On August 13th, Harry Brearley invents stainless steel in Sheffield, which is concurrent with its invention in the United States by Elwood Haynes. And lastly, on the 6th of September, Arsenal Football Club, previously based in Plumstead, South London, move into their new stadium at Highbury in North London. But our main story today, which is also football related, is about an England match, which actually took place right here in Bristol.
word of the week. Now, this week's word has become quite popular to use due to the current cost of living crisis, and some of you may have already heard it. The word is... Shrinkflation, also known as the grocery shrink-ray, deflation or package downsizing. And it's a process of items shrinking in size or quantity while their prices remain the same or even increase. One of the most famous early examples of shrinkflation was back in 2010 when Kraft reduced its 200 gram Toblerone bar to 170 grams. You may be surprised to know that before Wembley Stadium, England would play games all around the country. That was the case in 1899, when the opposition was Wales and the venue, Bristol City's Ashton Gate Ground. The last game played there by England was in 1913. In between those times, the ground hosted a prestigious rugby league tour match and a rugby union international that drew a crowd of 20,000. This reflected Bristol City's growing reputation. Elected to the Football League in 1901, the Robins were second division champions five years later and finished runners-up in the first division in their debut season. Then in 1909, they reached what is still their only FA Cup final, succumbing to Manchester United by a single goal. The match held in 1913 would also be against Wales, and it would take place on Monday the 17th of March. That was the beginning of Easter week, and, in Bristol at least, a very lovely time. Her Highness the Rane of Sarawak had just taken up residence on Royal York Crescent in Clifton. The Christmas pantomime was in its last few days at the Theatre Royal, and Edward Palmer was about to become the first person executed in the city for nearly a quarter of a century. But that's for another show. Anyway, this was a full decade before the opening of Wembley Stadium, which would give the national side a settled home of its own. Until then, England played matches all around the country, everywhere from Sunderland to Portsmouth, with Sheffield and Birmingham, Derby and Crewe in between. The team was in poor run of form, in fact having recently lost to Ireland for the very first time. As a result, the side chosen by a football association committee and then entrusted to the Bristol City trainer, Dick Batten, was an experimental one, with fully seven members who had never played international football before. The established players, meanwhile, included Harold Fleming, the Swindon town forward, but Bristol's football legend, Billy Wedlock, was nowhere in sight. Billy Wedlock was born barely a corner kick away from Ashton Gate, and he was Bristol City's captain, had been a key player of theirs, and part of their success. He had also won 25 England caps in the previous six years, but he was now sidelined by injury. His place against Wales would be taken by Joe McCall, a Preston North End, one of the debutants. For the visitors, goalkeeper William Bailiff had once been with the Robins, 
and people did pass comments that 38-year-old Billy Meredith had taken part in the fixture the last time he had come to Bristol, 14 years previously. Bristol treated the England players really well, as they were staying at the luxurious Clifton Down Hotel on top of Sion Hill, overlooking the suspension bridge, where the other guests included the Honourable Gerald Montague, down from his country pile near Windsor, and the celebrated soldier and explorer Sir Ronald MacDonald. Ashton Gate at the time wasn't a great place to play football and really needed updating. Standing in the middle of a patch of grubby ground in Bedminster, it was little more than a shallow bowl of terracing with a few hundred seats down each side. There were no floodlights, so kickoff had to be in the afternoon. And at the suggestion of the Bristol City Board, admission was reduced to sixpence from the shilling usually charged for England games. There had been heavy rain overnight, and the game began in a storm that wouldn't let up until half-time, and you could clearly see surface water on the pitch. Newspapers thought that maybe a heavy roller had been used recently, compacting the ground and not allowing enough drainage. The attendance at the match was also disappointing, probably because of the weather. Only around 8,000 spectators could be seen huddled together under whatever shelter they could find, while up in the seats, the Lord Mayor of Bristol, John Swaish, was resplendent in his gold official chain. Word on the street. Well, today I'm looking at the origins of the name Wembley, which is now a large suburb in the London borough of Brent, northeast London. The name Wembley is derived from the Old English proper name Wemba and the Old English Lee for meadow or clearing. And it was first mentioned in the Charter of 825 of Selvin. And it's interesting to note that the estate of Wembley Park used to be a large pleasure ground when the Metropolitan Railway reached this part in 1894. It was chosen to host the British Empire Exhibition in 1924, resulting in the development of landmarks, including the Empire Stadium, which was later known as Wembley Stadium. And so in the 1913 match, Wales won the toss and England kicked off, wearing their white shirts and navy blue shorts. A bitter wind blowing in their faces. The foul weather had turned the pitch into a quagmire with pools of standing water every few yards. The boar either stuck fast and refused to budge or simply skidded away and the players were forever losing their footing. It was the visitors in their red laced up shirts who struck first. Harold Fleming quickly drew England level, though, and the home side went on to score twice more before half-time. Their third goal came from Joe McCall, his long-distance shot finding its way through a crowd of legs. This brought a standing ovation from the terraces and praise for Joe in the following day's newspapers. Though Wales scored two goals after the break, England added a fourth and wrapped up the match. (laughs) 
The game was amazing, and the Times of Tuesday the 18th said, England beat Wales at Bristol yesterday by four goals to three. Although England were represented by an experimental side, much of the play reached a high standard, but the conditions, there were pools of water on the ground, did not enable an accurate opinion to be formed of their true ability as a team. The press, however, couldn't be positive about everything. They did enjoy the game, but they commented on the few hardy souls huddled together on the Ashton Gate terraces, which they compared unfavourably with the record crowd of 38,000 that had watched England last time out. And they also noted that on the same day as the Wales match, in equally filthy conditions, almost 60,000 people had packed into Newcastle United's ground for an FA Cup replay against Sunderland. Anyway, the Ashton Gate ground would be used for England under 23 matches until 1970, and for under 21 games after that. In more recent times, it has seen several women's internationals, yet of all the places that have hosted the national men's side, only two have been waiting longer for a return visit. Now here we have an extra bit, just for the podcast, where I tell you a little bit more about Bristol football legend Billy Wedlock. William John Wedlock, also known as Fatty or the India Rubber Man, was born on the 28th of October 1880, within sight of the famous Ashton Gate Stadium. He married Rosina Maria Lilly on the 20th of May 1900 at St John's Church, Bedminster, when he was 19 and she was 18. And on the marriage certificate, he's listed as a tanner, which is someone who worked with leather. The couple went on to have six children, three sons, William James, Thomas George, James and Frederick George, as well as two daughters, Lily and Ivy. Sadly, Rosina died in 1915, and Billy went on to marry Ada Louisa Owen on the 16th of April, 1918, and they had two more children, Ada and Dennis. On the 1921 census, Billy was listed as a licensed victualler at the Star Inn at 1 Bow Ashton Terrace in Bristol. Billy is famous for being a football legend. He began his career playing with Masonic Rovers and Bristol Melrose. He joined Arlington Rovers Football Club and stayed with them for four years, during which time he signed amateur forms with Bristol City Football Club and represented Gloucestershire. From the 1899 to 1900 season, Wedlock was a part-time professional with Aberdeer Athletic Football Club until Bristol City eventually signed him for the 1905 season. It was Vice-Chairman of Bristol City, Frank Bacon, who pushed for Wedlock to be signed to the team. In one director's meeting, he banged his fist on the table and shouted, Gentlemen, if you don't sign Wedlock, you'll miss a player who, before he's much older, will play for England. Wedlock was loyal to Bristol City, and even though he had offers from the likes of Chelsea, he stayed with them until his retirement in 1921, completing 403 league appearances. 
Billy was a centre-half who didn't have the physique of the average football player. He was short and stout, five foot four and a half inches tall and ten stone seven pounds, but his talent was amazing. He won 26 England caps between 1907 and 1914, his only rival for the centre-half position being Charlie Roberts of Manchester United, his opposite number in the 1909 FA Cup final. Mr J. Hoare reminisced in the Bristol Evening Post of the 21st of September 1968 a conversation he had with a Scottish friend whom he'd worked in London with years before. This friend was a huge football fan and said that one of his most outstanding memories had always been an international match between England and Scotland, which was played at Hampton Park. He was not definitely sure when it was, but at that time Scotland fielded what was generally considered to be their greatest forward ever, and many of the Scottish fans must have wondered how many goals those forwards were going to score against the old enemy. As a matter of fact, so my Scottish friend told me, those forwards did not score any. One Englishman practically held up the whole forward line, and at the end of the match, the Scottish spectators rushed onto the field and carried that player on shoulder high, an unusual but most pleasing happening, the first time he remembered it being done. The name of the player was Wedlock, the smallest of the 22 on the field. Needless to say, Mr Hoare, a Bristolian, was very proud to hear such glowing tributes from the Scot. Billy was a very well-respected player. Referee Jack Hawcroft said of him, Wedlock always accepted the rulings of the referee with a good grace. He trusted the referees, and the referees trusted him. In his whole football career, Wedlock only had one foul given against him. Billy Wedlock died on the 24th of January, 1965, at 4 Clift House Road, Ashton Gate, Bristol, and is buried in Arnes Vale Cemetery in Bath Road, Bristol. In 1918, Ashton Gate Stadium built the Wedlock Stand, which could seat 5,800. This was demolished in 2014, ahead of the £45 million revamp. This redevelopment of the ground saw the capacity increase to 27,000. Billy's great-granddaughter Hannah, speaking on behalf of the family, said it was very sad and marked the end of an era. The Star Inn, which was run by Billy and his family for 43 years, was taken over in 1981 by John Lenthal, who found various newspapers and mementos of Billy's in the attic and they eventually formed part of a display, along with Billy's England caps, that was set up for the renaming of the pub to the Wedlock, in Billy's honour. Sadly, the pub closed for good in 2005 and was demolished several years later. Hey, hey! Are you that weird one in your friends group that loves to watch true crime documentaries? Have you ever wanted to learn more about the lesser known crimes? And are you fascinated with ghost stories? I'm Hannah, the creator, editor, and host of Murder Bucket, a podcast that talks about, get this, murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, 
and weird stuff. Join me every Tuesday wherever you listen to podcasts to get the inside scoop on some of the most interesting topics in the true crime world. I am also very active on social media. You can find me on Instagram at MurdBucket, Facebook at BucketMurd, and Twitter at the Murder Bucket. In the news today, boffins in Bristol have discovered that there's no better karate instructor than a spider web in your face. Back in the day facts. Let's start with the 7th of October 1915 when English nurse Edith Cavell is sentenced to death along with 34 others by German court-martial for running an underground network to free Allied soldiers. Despite international outrage, she was executed by firing squad on the 12th of October then legal under international law. After her death, Cavell became a symbol of the Allied cause. When the war ended, Cavell's body was repatriated and a service was held in Westminster Abbey before being buried in Norwich Cathedral. The 8th of October 1927 sees the release of the film The Second Hundred Years, a silent short film starring Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy, it's the first Lauren Hardy film with them appearing as a team. On the 9th of October 1969, the Supremes released the single Someday We'll Be Together. It's Diana Ross's last recording with the group. The 10th of October 1903, the Women's Social and Political Union is formed by Emmeline Pankhurst to fight for women's rights in Britain. Some degree of success was achieved in 1918 when British women were granted limited suffrage, but it was only in the year of her death, in 1928, that women were granted full voting rights. On the 11th of October 1937, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, or Edward and Wallace Simpson, tour Nazi Germany for 12 days and meet Adolf Hitler on the 22nd. The 12th of October 1984, the IRA bombs the Grand Hotel in Brighton, where British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher is staying. Five people die. And lastly, on the 13th of October 1536, the pilgrimage of grace begins in Northern England, a protest against King Henry VIII's break with the Pope and the dissolution of the monasteries. Well, I'm afraid that's it from me for this particular episode. But don't worry, I'll be back same time, same place next week. And the people who brought today's tale to life include the very lovely Rose Hale, as well as Joe Wilson, Molly Jeffries, and David Brindley Hale from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol. Thank you, one and all. A particularly huge thank you goes out to David Hewitt, who sent the original story in of the England-Wales football match. David, your help and support is very, very much appreciated, and do keep those stories coming in. Thank you once again for listening to me, 
Alice on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.